Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 655 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, May the 2nd, 2011, and uh, it's a great show because why? Because it's all about you. Today is the day that I answer your questions, comments, commentary, suggestions, article suggestions, etc. that are sent to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, the email is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I often get emails that seem like you think you're writing somebody else. Um, you know, I hope Jack reads this or whatever. That's my personal email. I read all the email that comes in there. I respond to most of it that's not for a, if it's like for a show like this. Hey, you know, if I get, I get it through, I get it through. But most of the personal email I try to respond to uh, as well. So that is my email address. Give it out every show. All right. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about today. Of course, one of the things we're going to have to talk about is the reported death, uh, more accurately, assassination of Osama bin Laden. And uh, not that it's a bad thing or anything. That's not why I call it assassination, because it's what it is. We went out and shot the guy in the head is at least what's being reported. Uh, and then I have a ton of questions and, and a bunch of stuff today, maybe a little bit longer show than normal, and uh, some really new, interesting things to share with you today, and a couple cool new resources. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Emergency Essentials. Uh, you can find them at BePrepared.com. Again, BePrepared.com. Again, I'm not sure how they snake that one away from the uh, Boy Scouts, uh, but it is a great domain for them because what they do, they help you be prepared for anything that can come your way, specifically with long-term storage food. That's really their bread and butter where they specialize. Uh, they have the, probably the largest assortment anywhere of different brands, types, and varieties of long-term storage food. That's of a great catalog, and they have a tremendous wealth of knowledge available to you in their resource section with articles on getting started and things like that. So make sure you check out Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com today. Next up today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk about all this cool stuff you can grow, all this long-term storage food, all this great stuff that is out there that we can make sure it's part of our storage so that we can eat and that we can eat fresh foods and all. But once you have all this fresh stuff and you go to your farmer's market or your co-op or, or what have you, you have to cook it and eat it. So how do you do that? Well, if you check out Chef Keith's site, HarvestEating.com, he'll show you how to cook seasonally and cook locally and cook really awesome food. He's got a great site. And uh, one of the things you've got to get, um, I like everything that I've ever gotten from Chef Keith, but he has these seasonings. And the one, the Montreal Steak Seasoning, uh, if you've ever bought like the Grill Mates or something like that from uh, from the grocery store and tried it, that's okay, but don't even compare the two. I almost told him he just needs to call it Steak Seasoning because it's so different from what you get in the store. It's what I make my steaks with all the time. So if nothing else, check out his uh, Steak Seasoning. Uh, that, that stuff is just absolutely awesome. I just bought four more packages of it uh, to, to kind of stock up on it a little bit. Imagine that. Uh, next up today, make sure you check out our gear shop. We have really cool stuff, man. We got you know shirts and hats and things like that. We've also got some great tools, uh, and some some great little items that you can check out at our gear shop. You know, and share your affiliation with the Survival Podcast with others. 
Uh, also, make sure you connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And do consider joining the Member Support Brigade, because if you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll be supporting the show at what? About 20 cents an episode. And uh, I want to point out, man, the discounts are significant. I know that most of the people that have become Member Support Brigade members that have actually used the discounts have continued to to, uh, to to stay members for year after year because, and this is direct emails to me, it pays for itself. And that's the point. That was the entire point about the Member Support Brigade. I wanted something that, you know, in the beginning of the show, I had people that wanted to donate money to help support it, get it off the ground and things like that. I, I never took a donation, ever. And I never will. Uh, I just won't do it. If I'm going to take money from somebody, I have to give them something that's worth more than the money uh, that they gave me. That's that's business. Other, everything else is charity as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's what I did with the Members Brigade. If you join the Members Brigade, if you use the discounts, if you buy seeds, if you buy long-term storage food, if you buy outdoor gear, camping gear, survival gear, if you buy the stuff that we talk about all the time here, um, you will get your money back every year, year after year after year. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and get... Oh, one more thing. Again, if you are active duty military or prior service military, you're considering joining the MSB, email me first. I'll give you a special non-disclosed uh, uh, discount code just for military members that gives you a great discount. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, which is, of course, your questions and feedback. I actually haven't gotten any emails on this because it happened last night, or at least the release of the information came last night. Uh, Osama bin Laden is dead. What does it mean for me, and what does it mean for you uh, as modern survivalists? And I, I, I hate to say it this bluntly, but I'm going to say it because I have to. For us personally, it means absolutely nothing. If uh, if you lost somebody on 9/11, maybe there's some uh, there's some justice there for you, but that and some closure. But that's about it. For our troops that are out in the field, it's a huge morale boost. But in reality, it means absolutely nothing. Not one soldier is going to come home one day earlier because this happened. In fact, I think you'll see the war on terror escalated. I think you'll see a new boogeyman put in place. Their number two guy was Ziri Wazari, whatever the hell his name is, uh, You know, overnight, not by the resistance, but by our own government. Now we got to get this guy. Um, I also have some real questions, and I, I, you guys know I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but something stinks about this. Now I know uh, Alex Jones has already put out like a slew of articles, like, He's been confirmed dead nine times now, or he's been dead and on ice for eight years or something like that I just saw on his site. Uh, and, and I'm not going to that level, but what I just heard on the TV before I started the show was, in fact, my wife ran in and said, don't, don't do this until you hear what's happened. Supposedly, he's already been dead, confirmed with facial recognition software, confirmed with DNA. And Okay, fine, the DNA is a little bit quick, but I guess if it's that important, you do it quick. But here's the last one. Buried at sea about 2 o'clock in the morning. Yep. Uh, Fox News is reporting that the plan was, as soon as they were sure it was him, put him in a casket, take him up on this uh, aircraft carrier, and throw his ass in the ocean, and he's gone forever. What? Um, if, if, that's n if there is no conspiracy there, that just put gasoline on the fire in, in, in billions and trillions of gallons of gasoline. Uh, that conspiracy fire, if that's true, if that's what happened, if they do not uh, still have possession of that body this quickly, uh, that conspiracy theory will become the new number one conspiracy in the world. Uh, it will be bigger than, than JFK. It will be bigger than 9-11 itself. And our government has to know that. So Either there's something there, or they want the conspiracy theorists out there distracting people. One or the other. You decide. But I, I had to talk about this today because it's the biggest news item in the world today. But what does it mean to you as far as whether or not you're going to have more liberty tomorrow? 
uh, it means nothing. What does it mean to to me? Uh, other than the fact that if the guy's dead, I'm glad he's dead. He's not like he's a nice guy that I, you know. If I had if I had an opportunity to put a bullet in his head, I'd have done it myself. But it doesn't really matter, and it doesn't really affect me, and it doesn't really affect you. And the people that are out there cheering in the streets because they think it does, they're misleading themselves. And all this is going to do is dig us deeper into the quagmire that we're already in. All right, let's go ahead and talk about some more positive things. I guess we'd call them positive, but at least proactive things. Uh, first question today comes from Jamie. Jamie says, a question about taking out an equity loan for a BOL. We are in the market for a BOL slash future homestead, and we're thinking about taking a loan out uh, for financing purpose. We are hesitant to borrow uh, toward our home, but the land prices, 20 to 30K, would mean a low monthly uh, $130 to $160 a month that we could pay off relatively quickly. My reasoning behind the sort of thought even though it's uncomfortable for us to think about out of debt, is that if something were to happen and we were to put into a position to lose our house for whatever reason, that the BOL would be paid for into ours. If nothing went if something, nothing went wrong, then we would have a nice retreat hunting property and we'd be able to camp there instead of with the rest of society. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this, and thank you for the work you do, Jamie. Um, most people that know how I feel about debt are probably going to be like, oh, here comes the Dave Ramsey impression, you know, debt's bad, don't do it. Uh, no, it's not, not at all. Um, I don't know that it makes sense to do it as a home equity loan on your existing home um, rather than just borrow money to buy it with it as the insurance. Except here's the thing. If it's raw land, which it sounds like you're looking at at 20 to 30K, um, you probably are going to have a real hard time getting a loan with any kind of decent terms on it. So uh, this all depends on how much equity you have in your home, what your income level is, uh, what the additional payment does to your, your finances, and what your repayment schedule is. Now, let me give you some examples. If right now at the end of each month you have an extra thousand dollars that you're putting into savings, um, and you, you're debt-free other than your home, and you're making your mortgage payments in whatever frequency you, you desire for yourself, and this would be the only additional debt that you would have, And your payment on it's going to be 120, 130 bucks. And your plan is, well, since we could do more, we're going to pay $500 a month on this thing until it's paid off and uh, kill that ahead of our own mortgage and then go back to, to doubling down on the mortgage or whatever. And you have a good income and a good job and you have good savings, do it. I have no problem with it at all. If all of those things are in place, because your reasoning is sound, if I take the loan from the existing debt already and just add more to it and I go out and I buy this piece of land I own it free and cleared it's at least a place that I could go if you're going to take that attitude then you need to have a shack or a travel trail or something to make the land inhabited uh, as part of your budget uh, or at least in part of your, your budgeted first six months of maintenance on the property and uh, you know if you can get electricity uh, to the property things are even better at that price. And if you can get electricity and grid water, uh, even better. Now, I know people are going to say, but Jack, if the shit hits the fan, you won't be able to rely on that electricity and water. So why not just you know, go off grid from the first place and things like that? Well, because if the plan is, well, if everything falls apart, at least they have a paid-for place we can go live, and then we can try to figure out how to put it back together, and the rest of society hasn't fallen apart, then that works a lot better if there's water and electricity at the property. If it's off-grid altogether... Well, then you need to have a plan to get it 
a reasonable amount of comfortable electricity and a well and probably some type of a, uh, a septic system that doesn't have to be a true septic tank. It could be a composting toilet. It could be, you know, what an outhouse, whatever. But you got to get it livable if that is your rationale. If your rationale is, hey, what I want to do is make sure that, uh, that this place is at least a place I can go. So it becomes my bug out location, not just for the end of the world as we know it, but for the end of our world as we know it as a family. And at least if everything else falls apart, we have a place to go. Then it has to be able to perform that function if that makes sense. Now, that doesn't have to cost a lot more money. I mean, we're talking, you can do a lot with $5,000 in that range. Uh, if there's water on the property, that helps a lot. If there is a, a high water table, so if you're talking about putting in uh, a 25-foot deep well in relatively soft ground, like you're somewhere in Florida, well, you could probably do that on your own if you had to. If you're talking about a 600-foot deep well like I have at my bug-out location in Rock, it's going to be an expensive proposition to put a well in. So you have to add up all of these things. But the overall premise, no, I don't have a problem with. If you have a quarter-million-dollar home and you have about $200,000 worth of equity in it and there's $50,000 to play with, you're going to take 20 to 30. But right now you you just you know you you get by to the end of the month with a couple hundred bucks for savings, and that's going to make that savings go away. No. No. Uh, the way the lending climate is, though, right now, odds are if you are there, they're not going to give you the money anyway. It's between that extreme and the other extreme, the good extreme that I gave you. Where are you in that gray area? You have to decide for yourself if this makes sense. But the overall premise, I actually like. It's not much different than what we did here. I had two mortgages at the same time, right? And I have one in Arlington, which we're fixing to dissolve by selling the house, and one up there. Uh, the thing was that the, the, the cost of the property was so affordable up there, and we went so equity heavy when we bought this house, that my total mortgage payments were less than most people's mortgage payments in comparable neighborhoods on one house. So I actually assumed less risk as far as I was concerned, because again, if everything fell apart, I could take my savings and go up there and pay my $500 house payment for years before I needed another dime of income, and they could choke on this house if it came down to it. So you can you can set it up that way as well. Uh, you don't necessarily have to take all of the additional debt on. Uh, maybe you take half the debt. Maybe you take twenty thousand uh, in equity. Let's say that's what you need to buy the land. Maybe you put ten thousand dollars into the property, and maybe you put ten thousand dollars into improvements and finance ten directly. I mean, a ten thousand dollar loan on a piece of property, you're talking about a seventy dollar payment or something like that. It's all dependent. Think deeply before you do this stuff. Let's take another one. Okay, Nick Ledoux sends me a question. Nick over at SaveOurSkills.com, one of our sister sites. Uh, check out SaveOurSkills.com. But his question is from a friend who asks, basically, they have a skunk uh, that's taken up residence under a concrete slab at their front door. It's also kicked out the sub-base stones all over the garden surrounding the slab. And once it's gone, how do we discourage it from returning? Um, the best way I know to get it out of there, and really the best way I can think of to do this, is to do it at a time when you don't think he's in there. And how do you know if he's there or not? Um, well, you take yourself some little little sticks and you make like a cage with sticks just sitting there on their own weight. I mean little sticks that are easy to move and you put it there in front of the, the steps. If you come and the, the sticks are knocked out, he's left. And if you go and the sticks are, are pushed to the side, he's gone in. Uh, and take yourself one of those good old-fashioned bug bombs like a raid roach bomb or whatever and uh, set it off and chunk it underneath there like a uh, grenade, 
and uh, make the make the area inhospitable. That would be one way to make sure that he goes out and stays out. The other way would be maybe to smoke the area out. There you got to worry about the smoke getting up in your structure, though. But any type of thing that's going to make the uh, the place inhospitable would be a good way to get him out of there. And then the next thing to do would be to fill it back in, and I would just fill it in with with more concrete. Uh, I would I would go ahead and backfill it with dirt, and I would kind of plug the end with concrete. Now you got to worry about getting it in from other angles and what have you. Uh, but I mean, it's kind of a surefire way with if this is a slab, which is what it sounds like, and if it, it sounds like it's a porch slab, you could literally dig a trench all the way around it, lay down chicken wire, and then cover it back over, and that should do a good job of preventing a, a re-entry there. But uh, sounds like what usually happens here is you get some settling, and that starts a little ridge, and then a little critter looks at that and goes, "It's pre-built, man. All I got to do is shave it out." Now here's your problem this time of year. Uh, there's a reasonable possibility that that skunk has kittens, you want to call them that, babies, uh, with him underneath there because it might be a her. And if you do what I've just said, you may kill them. And not only would you kill them, but they would lay under there and reek and stink. So you may have to wait this out at this time of year. You may be looking at, uh, and you know, here, here's the good thing. Um, for all the bad press that skunks get, unless they're threatened, they're pretty, pretty benign creatures. They don't cause a lot of trouble. Um, but if you were sure he wasn't under there and you could shine a light under there and make sure that there's no babies in there and understand that baby skunks can spray too, but usually once they're, you know, a few weeks old, they're out and about with mom anyway. If you can verify there's nothing under, under there, uh, bug bombs work good for this purpose. I've used it with success with other critters that have gotten in the way. I don't like to use insecticides. Uh, but what it does is it creates an environment that the cr critters just like, I don't like it in there anymore. And then backfill it. I mean, those are the best things that you can do there. A uh, little quick story on skunks. My, my uh, former business partner, actually still, still actually a minor business partner, Bill, uh, Neil Franklin, called me up one day and said, Jack, how do you get a skunk out of the backyard? I said, leave it alone, Neil. He goes, if I let the dogs out, will the uh, dogs chase it away? No, Neil, don't send the dogs out. Leave it alone. But there's a fence. Neil, if it got in, it'll get out. Leave the skunk alone. Five minutes later, Ring, phone rings, answer the phone, and I already, it's him, he's on caller ID, and I already know the words that are going to come out of his mouth. Jack, how do you get skunk smell off of a dog? Um, you can wash him in tomato sauce and uh, water and beer and see if that helps, but basically your dog's going to stink for a few days. Uh, hopefully they've learned a lesson with skunks, and hopefully so have you. Most instances, unless you've got them underneath the, the, the thing like you got here, best solution to a skunk is leave it alone. Next one comes from Shannon. Shannon says, There is no joy in the vindication of a dire prophecy. I've been warning people for some time about the coming storm. Now the dollar is headed to new lows. The Chinese are dropping their T-bills by the trillions. That's not quite true, Shannon. It's not by the trillions. Uh, and it seems clear to me that the bus has gone off the cliff. Recently, grasshoppers have been asking me, What do we do? With regard to the... With the rapid acceleration of deteriorating circumstances, I fear it's largely too late to move out of the apartment, start store food, climb out of debt, and get ready. I barely feel like we have enough time and resources to prepare myself. Surely some grasshopper realizes two days before the first frost that they made a mistake. My question for Jack is, what do I tell them? Well, Shannon, uh, my outlook's actually a little bit more positive than yours. I'm beginning more and more to believe that we're looking at a good, solid one to one and a half years of real uh, fake recovery now. Just like I forecasted, even though I doubted myself from time to time about it, uh, there's so much money pumped in by QE1 and QE2, and QE3 will happen even if they say they're not going to. Uh, there's so much liquidity in the markets. 
Uh, there's, there's an inflationary curve that's just about right for profit-taking uh, by corporations, by managing their supply chains effectively. Everything that I forecasted in August of 2008, I just played that for you on Friday, crappy audio and all, has happened exactly like I said it would. So as I go back and look at that analysis myself and look out to the future, um, and I look at the rest of the stimulus money actually going into the economy. We're talking a, a fairly large chunk of change yet that's just now beginning to go out into public works projects and things like that. I've always called it the Ask Clowns Re-Election Fund, and that's what it is. Um, I see another year to a year and a half of overall, there'll be dips, there'll be hiccups, but overall growth of the Dow, overall growth of the S&P, overall returning of optimism to the sheeple. And what I see... Forcing us off the end of this cliff are two things. One is a short-term thing, but can we get around it short-term? And I think maybe we can because people have already adapted a large degree to it, and that is gas prices. Uh, so I think people adapt to $4 gas today. I don't think they could have adapted, and they didn't in 2008. That was part of what caused the crash, but it really isn't. It really isn't. Uh, without the, the mortgage meltdown, the, 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 the gas would have corrected itself back down quite a bit, uh, and it would have floated about where it is now, and there's tremendous profit being made by the oil producers, oil refiners, and, and, and gas, gas refiners right now. So that's all not good for us as individuals, but what I'm saying is I see even the gas problem us skating it to a degree, causing a lot of misery, but yes, we get through it, and then the big crack opens, the first big crack. If you remember, I did an article, I'll put a link today, seven deadly cracks in the U.S. economy. And one of them is, and actually two of them are very similar to each other. One is municipalities, cities going bankrupt, and the other states going bankrupt. I think what happens is somewhere about 18 months from now, and it could be 24, it could be 16, it could be 12, right? I'm just saying that my gut rate, and this is a gut thing, Somewhere in there, a major municipality basically starts to, to, to fail and default. And somebody on the sides of Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's Tampa. Maybe it's Atlanta. Maybe it's Indianapolis. But it's some major, major municipality that begins to default. Uh, of course, the federal government and state government rush in to prop it up, but this is the first chink. And from there, so when you want to know what the next the next thing that I think is taking us down is defaults by the, the cities and the state governments followed by failed attempts by the federal government to bail them out. And at that point, we either go off into a black abyss or we go into the, the, the long-feared hyperinflation. There's the second side. But I just don't think we're there yet. But to me, that's what we need to watch. Now, the silver market might be in a bubble right now. I'm going to talk about that later this week. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not... Bullish on buy, I'm not bullish on sell. I'm basically holding everything I have, and I'm not buying any silver right now. Um, I'm kicking around the idea of maybe selling some. Maybe maybe selling $5,000 worth, put it in cash, set it aside. It's, it's just another form of reserve, and if silver comes back down, buying more of it. If silver goes up, I still have the reserve of cash. I don't know yet. But the markets itself, and how does this affect your question? I think there's time. I think there's, I think there's a year and a half until... Everybody figures it out. I think there's six months more after that before it gets really, really bad. So I think what you tell them is start making changes in your life. Get out of debt. Find yourself a little place, you know. Get ready to live a, a better quality, lower standard of living. I mean, that's, that's what I would tell them. Uh, food's still cheap. 
right? It's not you're not out of time. Food's still cheap. There's plenty of long-term storables out there that are dirt cheap that can go into five-gallon buckets to get you through hard times. There's still plenty of cheap land out there. Mortgage rates are still low. Everything is still relatively, as bad as you think it is, it's relatively good. There's time. Work. Understand winter's coming and get to work. Hey, the ants only get about six months. If you get 18, there's plenty of time. You're smarter than an ant. Get to work. All right. Um, the next one I, I want to read to you is uh, kind of interesting. And it's actually interesting because of things that I've told you in the past. It comes to us from Donna, and the title of the article is IMS Bombshell, Age of America Nears End. And uh, it's from an article uh, put out on Market Watch anywhere is the link that I found for it. She just cut and pasted it in the email. Folks, when you send me an article, don't cut and paste it in the email. Send me a link because I like to cite my sources, and I like to be able to send people to the actual source. And if you're my source and you're sending me something you've cut and pasted, I'd like it from where you got it. So send me a link. Don't cut and paste the articles. Uh, you can, but please put the link at the top for me. Anyway, so I found this on uh, MarketWatch. Now let me read you some parts of it. And then we're going to talk about, we've all heard this before, really. In fact, we'll, we, we've heard what they're not saying before from some guy named Spirico. Let's listen to this. Uh, for the first time, the international organization has set a date for the moment when the age of America will end and the U.S. economy will be overtaken by China. And it's a lot closer than you might think. According to the latest IMS official, IMF official forecast, China's economy will surpass that of America in real terms by 2016, just uh, five years from now. Put that on your calendar. It provides a painful context for the budget wrangling taking place in Washington right now raises enormous questions about when the international, what the international security system is going to look like in just a handful of years. And it casts a deepening cloud over both the U.S. dollar and the giant treasury market, which has been propped up by decades by, by the privileged status as liabilities of the world's hemorrhagic, hermetic power. According to the IMF forecast, which is posted on the fund's website uh, just two weeks ago, whoever is elected U.S. president next year, Obama, Mitt Romney, Donald Trump, will be the last president over the world's largest economy. Last to preside, I said last president, somebody's going to be president over somebody's economy, but anyway, the last, last U.S. president to preside over the world's largest economy. Most people aren't prepared for this. They aren't even aware that it's close. Listen to the experts of various stripes, and they will tell you this moment is decades away. The moment, uh, the most bearish will put the figure in the mid-2020s. Um, let's, let's talk about the important part here that I really want you to get. Uh, this part forward is where you should be like, oh, we've heard this before if you've listened to the show for any length of time. But they're miscounting. They're only comparing the gross domestic products of the two countries using the current exchange rates. That's largely meaningless comparison in real terms. Exchange rate changes quickly, and China's exchange rate uh, are phony. China artificially undervalues its currency, the renminbi, through massive intervention in the markets. The comparison that really matters, in addition to comparing the two countries based on exchange rates, the IMF analysis also looked to the true real-term picture of the economies using purchasing power parties. That compares what people earn and spend in real terms in their domestic economies. Under the PPP, which I guess is Purchasing Power Parties, the Chinese economy will expand from $11.2 trillion this year to $19 trillion in 2016. Meanwhile, the size of the U.S. economy will rise from $15.2 trillion to $18.8 trillion. That would take America's share of world output down to 17.7%, the lowest in modern times, where China's would reach 18% and be rising. All right, if you want to read the rest of the article, you can. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But 
I want you to think about what's not being said here. Basically, what the IMF said is, let's let's not worry about how the renminbi, the Chinese dollar, if you want to call it that, compares to the U.S. dollar. Let's worry about the people in China that earn and spend their money and what they buy in their local economies and how big is the Chinese economy really when we look at their, their cost of goods sold within their, within their own borders. So what we're saying then is that the Chinese farmer that raises a pig and makes pork and sells it to another Chinaman and he buys it and cooks it on his backyard barbecue just like we do here in America. Because believe it or not, life in China is not that much different for a lot of people than it is here in America. So he's sitting out in his backyard. How big of a cut of pork can he buy based on his income and his currency? And when they look at that and they kind of equalize that against the United States and compare the actual purchasing power of the local economy, they say, when we adjust that up, China is sitting at about an $11.2 trillion economy, not what they actually say they are. Because we all know, everybody knows, Donald Trump's made us aware of this, right? And you know, One of the few things he's actually right about is the Chinese have manipulated their currency by pegging it to the dollar on the downside. If you look at the renminbi and the dollar, they, they float almost exactly. And the delta stays the same. They make their currency weak against the dollar. Why? We are their largest customer. So our dollar buys more into our relative economic strength, and they sell us cheap crap, and they're able to make lots of money doing that because, remember, they make their money the way we do. It's fiat. It's fake. It's debt-backed currency just like ours. Then they buy our debt, and they trade our debt. But what's not being said here, and what I've always said is that China is a chess player where the United States has become a checkers player. We are reactive. We have a piece move. We look at what happens if we make that move. If we like the result of making that move, we make that move and maybe we make, you know, maybe we kill two guys off with it. And maybe we don't even lose anybody right away. But that's how you play checkers. Chess, you're thinking five, six, seven, eight moves ahead. And you're thinking about your end game from the very beginning. And that the Chinese end game might be, here's what we'll do. We'll go out and we'll buy all kinds of crap in, in, uh, in Africa. Real commodities, gold mines, agricultural production, oil production, which they've been doing. We'll invest in our own infrastructure. We'll invest in it at, at, at a petrochemical, coal-based economy. We'll also invest in it on an alternative fuels economy. We'll buy as much real commodity as we can get. We'll hold, hoard gold. We'll bring in U.S. Treasuries. We'll sell some off. We'll convert all of this phony money into real money. Uh, maybe someday the world will even switch back to a gold standard. We'll be sitting in the cat seat for that. Or a commodity-based system, which is even a better idea, and we'll be sitting in the catbird seat for that. But at some point, if none of that happens, all we're going to do is, since the Americans have been screaming and screaming and screaming about the unfair trade advantage, all we have to do is pull the lock out of that currency peg and just let our currency float up to its real value. The day that happens, we take over. That's what they're not telling you. That's what I told you long ago. Um, that's what's really going on here. And that's what's going to happen. Uh, does that mean that the United States dries up at the end of the American age? No. You know, being the second largest economy in the world is not necessarily a terrible thing to be. But it does mean that we don't get to ride roughshod over the rest of the world economically anymore. And because we've been a big kid on the block bullying some people, that may not work out so well for us. Uh, we have real problems, and we are about to go off the face of a cliff with debt. There's no, there's no doubt. I actually think that the number the IMF gave is is wrong. I think it's going to happen before 2016. I think it's 2014-ish. Because I think that it's not just about our economy not growing at the rate theirs does. 
It's about a collapse. It's also about our currency continuously weakening and weakening and weakening. And eventually the Chinese have to let their currency strengthen because they can't allow it to become that weak. There's, there's, a, there's the other side of the coin here. We're going to force them into a corner that they're going to have only one out of. And that's going to be to exercise their end game. And it's game over for us economically. That doesn't mean that we drive and blow away again. It just means we're not the big kid on the block anymore. Uh, let's go take another one, maybe some a little bit lighter. And this one comes from Kelly. Kelly says, is there such a thing as a microcurrency? Can I legally start a simple medium of wealth exchange among small community of my peers rather than either only barter in one-to-one -one transactions or wait for local co-op to support larger initiatives like AOCS? which is, of course, the American Open Currency Exchange Standard, Rob Gray's deal. Uh, the video by Douglas Ruskaroff, Radical Abundance, got me thinking about this and mentioning a myriad of local currencies of medieval times, which I found on the website Open Sourced Hardware you mentioned in yesterday's podcast. And there's a, a link to a video that I'll provide, but I haven't watched yet myself. Keep the good work. Congrats on living the dream at last, Kit. Uh, so I guess Kelly is also known as Kit. Um, here's the deal, Kelly Kit. Um, yes, you can do that anytime you want to. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Uh, any group of people can get together and exchange goods and services by any means they choose with any form of currency they want to. You can use buttons. You can use bottle caps. You can use rabbit turds. I mean, and I'm being a little ridiculous here, but I'm just kind of making a point that the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It, it, there's no... There's nothing that you can do that is illegal as long as all parties are fully aware and fully agree upon it, with two caveats. One, all parties must be aware you cannot pass the currency into another economy. right? It has to, so you can't do what the guy with the Liberty Dollar did and make a, a coin and, and put $10 on it, back when silver was $6 an ounce, by the way, and uh, make that look like, and go out and spend it at Walmart and say, yeah, that's the new $10 coin which is what that jackass did. That's why his whole thing fell apart. Those of you that think he was uh, you know, persecuted or something, you need to go look at what really happened. There's video of this guy going out to vendors and streets and all, going, hey, I can either give you the paper 10 or the new $10 coin. Now, he didn't say the new U.S. $10 coin, but you look at that coin and you see what he said, and people were taking it because they thought it was currency. That you cannot do. So everybody has to be fully aware. The next one is it cannot be intended to defraud uh, the U.S. government for taxation purposes, which is exactly what it sort of kind of does. Uh, in other words, you're supposed to report it. If you are an accountant and um, you take some sort of other currency to provide accounting services, you're supposed to then account to the government that that was income of some kind. Uh, it's almost impossible for them to get you for that. You'd have to be pretty stupid to leave enough breadcrumbs around for that to happen. But you can't, if you do it with the intent, we're going to create a currency specifically so we don't pay taxes on it, and you advertise it that way, you will create a target on your head. But if 20 people get together and say, hey, we're all professionals, we'll all exchange services, but we're going to create a professional services script that... Um, you know, if you are an accountant and I'm a lawyer and I need some uh, accounting advice, but you don't need a lawyer right now, uh, you can pay me in that script. And then anybody else in our group has agreed that I'll provide my services uh, in return for that script at a face value based on hours. We say the, the average hour worked of an individual in this group in our economy, not U.S. economy, is worth 50. Not $50, 50 credits, whatever it is, you know, or it's one hour. And that, that just buys an hour of anybody's time. 
We can exchange that all we want. There's really not much anybody can do about it. Where people get into trouble is in the marketing of it. If they try to grow it bigger than that little group, and they start talking about the tax advantages and stuff like that. Um, why do you think Al Capone got taken down by the IRS, folks? Do you really think it was the only way they could get him? Or do you think the government was trying to make a point? How many times have you heard it? If they can get Al Capone, they can get you too. That's why they did it. They could have took Capone down anytime they wanted on, on a variety of charges. They got him with the IRS as a public relations maneuver. Uh, so if you start to get where you're making too much of a point with what you're doing, and you're doing it in a way that, that, that under our current system, now, you know me, I don't think we should be paying income tax in the first place, but under our current system, a legal case can be made that you're defrauding the system of taxation, they will get you. But... If you and your buddies get together and, and you, you know, or any group gets together, you can exchange anything you want. You're technically supposed to report it as income, but you value how it's income. And if it's exchanged uh, on a kind of equal level, it can be a wash financially is another way to look at it. So uh, it's up to you, but you can do anything you want in that realm. You just have to be careful about how you do it. All right, next one. Uh, this, this article does a good job. This comes from Mike. This article does a good job of summarizing coming food shortages you've been talking about and reinforces the importance of food storage and home food preparation. Curious to hear your take on how you see the global shortages affecting us over uh, and the overall legitimacy of this article. So let's pull the article up. So we'll, we'll go ahead and pull up that article here, and uh, I'm gonna. It's like a four-page article. I'm gonna read part of the first page, give you some thoughts on it. You guys can read the whole thing if you want. It's a monster article. It's actually. Very well thought out, very well written. Of course, the U.S. is victimizing the world in it if you read into it enough, but uh, what else is new? What I don't think it brings out enough is how it's going to affect us. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about, the again, the part they don't tell you here uh, once I read part of it to you. But this is by Lester Brown. It's on foreignpolicy.com. In the United States, when the world wheat prices rise by 75% as they have over the last year, it means the difference between a $2 loaf of bread and a loaf costing maybe $2.10. If, however, you live in New Delhi, those skyrocketing costs really matter. A doubling of the world price of wheat actually means the wheat you carry home from the market to hand grind into flour uh, for chapatis, whatever those are, costs twice as much. And the same is true with rice. If the world rice price doubles... So does the price of rice in your neighborhood market in Jakarta. And so does the cost of a bowl of boiled rice in an Indonesian family's dinner. What to Welcome to the new food economics. Hold on a second, folks. Let's scroll this thing. I'm, I'm on the laptop here at, at, back in Arlington. Welcome to the new food economics of 2011. Prices are climbing, but the impact is not at all being felt equally. For Americans who spend less than one-tenth of their income in the supermarket, the soaring food prices we've seen so far this year are an annoyance, not a calamity. But for the planet's poorest 2 billion people who spend 50 to 70% on their, of their incomes on food, these soaring prices may mean going from two meals a day to one. Those who are barely hanging on to the lower rungs of the global economic ladder risk losing their grip entirely. This contribute, can contribute, and it has, to revolutions in upheaval. Already in 2011, the United Nations Food Price Index has eclipsed its previous all-time global high. As of March, it had climbed for eight consecutive months, with the year's harvest predicted to fall short. With governments in the Middle East and Africa teetering as a result of price spikes, and with anxious markets sustaining one shock after another, food has quickly become the hidden driver of world politics. 
and crises like these are going to become increasingly common. The new geopolitics of food looks a whole lot more volatile and a whole lot more contentious than it used to be. Scarcity is the new normal. In many ways, the resumption of the 2007-2008 food, in many ways, this is a resumption of the 2007-2008 food crisis, which subsided not because the world somehow came together to solve its grain crunch once and for all, but because the Great Recession tempered growth and demand even as favorable weather helped farmers produce the largest grain harvest on record. Historically, price spikes tended to be almost exclusively driven by unusual weather. A monsoon failure in India, a drought in the former Soviet Union, a heat wave in the U.S. Uh, Midwest. Such events are always disruptive, but thankfully infrequent. Unfortunately, today's price hikes are driven by trends of both uh, evaluating demand and making it more difficult to increase production. Among them, a rapidly expanding population, crop withering temperature increases. You know, it's freezing cold here in North Texas on April 2nd today, folks. It's cold as hell out there. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, making it more difficult to increase production. Among them, a rapidly expanding population, blah, blah, blah. Each night, there are 219,000 additional people to feed on the global dinner table. So you read the rest of the article if you want to. Again, um, with these things that come out of the liberal mindset, it's always our fault. It's always America's fault. America's always getting a disproportionate advantage to everybody else. And it's always global warming, which you know makes itself felt throughout this entire article. But um, what are they right about? Uh, they're right about the fact that what's really going on here, and if you read the whole article, what they start saying is, we've taken for granted that, that we can always produce more food every year, that increases in production are normal. And we've come to a flat spot where we kind of plateaued and we're not producing more food every year. So when there's a crop loss, there's no increase to compensate for it, so it's less. So it's either the same or less. And yet we add a quarter million people, uh, you know, like clockwork. Uh, we're adding, what did, it, what did it actually say? Ah, uh, blah, blah, blah. 219,000 additional people to feed every night. So every day we're adding a quarter of a million people to the planet to feed, and our production's not going up. Well, there's your problem, right? That's what the guy says on Mythbusters. Well, there's your problem. Uh, you, you got more people, less food. Now, here's the part they're not going to tell you, because the U.S. has to be the bad guy in this. Uh, you're not going to get away with this either. This isn't going to keep going on. Wheat going up, the main ingredient in bread, by 75% and your cost of bread only going up by 5%, that cannot last forever. What I've been telling you since the beginning with the recession and, and all the, the inflation that went along with it and had you know, the inflation that was created to fight the recession and how this was going to work out is that supply chains are very efficient and there's always a place where you can make the supply chain more efficient for a while. And that companies would absorb some of the inflation for a certain period of time and use efficiencies to absorb it, beat down their suppliers to absorb it, uh, use government subsidy to absorb it, whatever it was, and that that would mitigate inflation for a time. But eventually, that bubble has to come through. That basketball has to pass through the garden hose and come out at the other end and hit us in the face. What they're not telling you here is that you're not going to continue to have grain go up by 75% and only have your bread go from $2 to $2.10. Also, I don't think this person has ever actually shopped in an American grocery store because I've seen the price of bread go up by a lot more than a dime a loaf in the past two years. So it's already worse than they're telling you. So the overall legitimacy of the article, the theme is on. The liberal, cryy, whiny, it's the U.S.'s fault is, is BS. 
All these, you know, these economies that out or that are out there that supposedly take such great advantage of. Uh, what kind of shape do you think where they would be in if we didn't buy anything from them? Well, you pay them too little. What if we bought nothing? What if we said the hell with it? You know what? You're right. Let's be Jeffersonians like Jack. Let's just stay home. Right? A lot of these places you think we're taking advantage to, we're pumping billions of dollars into their economies by being their customers. And uh, but here's the reality: from this article, there's going to be less food and more people. And all the genetic engineering has not paid off with the promises that it's promised. It's not increased yields. It just hasn't. If you look at yields from 10 years ago, where GMO was the exception, and you look at the yields today, per acre for the same crops where GMO is the rule, they're not that much greater. For everything we've lost, we've gained very, very little. And the yields are falling now. Because the, the temporary shot in the arm with this genetic modification is petering out. The weeds are becoming resistant to the herbicides. Because, gee, if you spray something long enough with an herbicide, sooner or later the few that can survive will, will come out and survive and take over. So we've created super weeds. Great. We've poisoned our food. And we, we have. Even if you don't think the GMO itself is bad. Uh, if I, you know, I just had a guy on the blog just whining and crying. Uh, that's not fair. Right, He was objecting to my stance on GMOs, saying I was a little bit nutty. And I'm like, based on his comments, you don't understand what you're objecting to. Go learn. And then if you still object, if you still disagree with me, fine. But you don't know your own facts yet. You don't know why you believe what you believe. And I said something about you know spraying the corn with Roundup. He said, well, make sure, pass me the corn, but make sure you rinse the Roundup off first. You can't rinse the Roundup off first. When you make the corn able to be sprayed with Roundup, you make it Roundup ready, and you spray it when it's a little bitty plant, it sucks the Roundup into itself. You can't wash blood off of an arm. You have to drain blood out of an arm. And in this case, you're eating the corn's blood. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a cytoplasm. It's, 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 it's body. You're eating the corn. Well, it's absorbed into the corn. When you, when you take, uh, a corn and you modify it so it produces BT, you're consuming the BT. There's no way to rinse it off. It's not on the exterior, it's inside the plant. So we've done all of this damage to our food supply and we've done very little in the way of actually increasing yields. And all of you that believe out there, that think I'm nutty on this subject, I want you to understand something first of all. When I first heard about genetically modified foods, I thought it was hippie bullshit. I'm like, you know, they got another thing to bitch about it. This is just like global warming, it's a non-starter. Unlike global warming, when I dug into the actual facts and the actual research and the actual studies, it wasn't based on a graph and some guy's opinion. It was based on actual fact. And you don't have to be a genius to go, you know what, if you're not supposed to breathe this stuff when you spray it, spraying it on food that absorbs it and eating the food, that would be bad. You don't have to be a genius to understand that if we're taking composted cow manure from plants that have been sprayed with this stuff, and it passes through the cow, and then the composted manure that the organic garden tries to use kills legumes because there's still enough residual herbicide in the cow's crap. After the food's been grown, the cow ate it, the cow crapped it, and I've composted it, that it's not biodegradable. It's still in there. There's some of the thunder. I delayed the show for some of that today. Hopefully it won't get too loud here. We've had a lot of thunder and hail, but but there you go. That's, that's reality. So... Um, I think the food shortages are going to get worse. The food prices are, prices are going to go up right here in America. And the days of watching the commodity run away and us being only moderately annoyed by it, they're going to come to an end. It's probably a year or two, but we're on, I keep saying this, folks, I feel like we're on the edge finally. 
We're on the edge where we're going to go off into some sort of an abyss. Is it the final one? I don't know. Is it the darkest one we've ever envisioned? I don't know. But the time to be prepared is now. And more urgently than I told you in 2008 when I started, far more urgently. And you know I'm not an alarmist. Uh, I don't I don't hype things. I don't. But this article, I think, I'd like everybody that listens to this show maybe to knock out 15 minutes of your time a day to read the entire thing, take it in, understand the political connotations that are going to be there. You don't have to agree with them to understand the underlying facts. Let's go ahead and take another one. The next one's just a brief email. I'm not going to comment on it much. I'm just going to read it to you and give you a few comments on it. But I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, this comes from David. Jack, just dropping you a quick line. In episode 483, you advise people should have at least 50 gallons of water on hand. I don't have that much, but I probably have about 30 gallons in cases and bottles. Living in a small town with all perks and none of the problems of a big city, I never thought water would be a problem. When I got home from visiting my mother on Easter, I found out three water towers were drained by main breaks and the water pressure throughout the town has dropped. The whole town is under a boil order. Uh, while boiling water doesn't sound like it would be difficult, I don't have to find out because I was prepared. It's kind of strange watching all the people yelling the sky is falling just because they have to boil some water. Many are refusing to do it and then complaining about not having any water. Let me read that one line again to you. Many are refusing to do it and then complaining about not having any water. Think of some of your neighbors, people. Okay? Anyway, thanks for the tip. I've been downloading your shows to listen to in the evenings. It sure beats the one-eyed brain sucker television. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. David. Uh, thanks for that, David. I think there's a couple things at play here. One, yes, have water stored. Number two, sometimes these things happen, and water gets contaminated before the, the boil advisory goes out, or you're not listening to the one-eyed brain sucker, and you don't hear about the boil water advisory. So this is another reason to have a good water filtration system in place in your home. So that if the boil water advisory goes out 24 hours after the catastrophe, you haven't ingested any pathogens, and you haven't been infected. There's been several stories. One was in like uh, Minnesota or Michigan or something like that. One was in Canada where uh, the water was infected, and until people started showing up at the hospital sick, uh, the city didn't even know that it was infected. A couple different things uh, that caused that level of infection. So that's that's one thing. Uh, number two, having the water stored obviously has saved David uh, a lot of grief. So I'm glad that David took that advice and stored some water. Uh, and another thing, you know, David lives in a place where, you know, I'm not really gonna have to worry about that. We got a small township water. The water is good to drink. It's safe. And, uh, you know, come on. I mean, we're not, we're not in Detroit here or something like that. Why would I have to worry about, oh, there you go. A couple water mains break and all of a sudden you have to boil your water because you don't know what's in it. But the big one, the one I read twice, people refuse to follow the boil water order and then complain that they don't have any water. Do you know how screwed up you have to be? that you need water and all you have to do is turn the faucet on and throw it in a pot and boil it and then you can safely drink it and you bitch rather than do that? Do you know how screwed up you have to be in the head? And then here's the thing. Massive numbers of Americans are that way right now. Massive numbers of Americans are that way right now. What are these people going to do in a real crisis? Can you rely on them to help? Can you rely on them to keep their heads? Can you rely on them for anything? Or is that a signal, that one little thing right there, is that a signal that maybe, just maybe, you need to be prepared to do without and to take care of yourself and to deal with idiots? To deal with idiots that are just stupid and to deal with some idiots that are absolutely freaking dangerous in a crisis? 
I cannot give you a more clear signal that a person that would have to go two or three days boiling their water until they fix the problem would not do it and then bitch. That person is a powder keg in a real situation. My dad used to say something to me when I was a kid, and I used to think my dad was nuts. And, and today, uh, it's one of the many things that he used to say that helps me realize the wisdom that came from his generation that lived you know, in the 50s, but were still living with a family that lived like it was the 20s. That's what I mean. They had an outhouse until about 1965. That's when they put the, the actual, you know, new modern bathroom into the 200 or 150 year old house today, right? It was in the 60s. And what he used to tell me is, look, if they ever just shut off the lights, half the people will just sit down and wait for someone to help them and die. 10% of the people are going to know what to do and do it in a logical way. 5% will immediately become extremely dangerous, and the remainder are the real problem. The throngs of people that feel entitled to the lights coming back on. They're going to be the ones that bring the whole thing down if it ever happens. I used to think he was nuts. You know what? He was absolutely right. My fear is that the number of people that would go nuts is actually bigger than his number. Maybe it wouldn't be 50% that lay down and die. Maybe it would be 30%, and that would add 20% more to the melee. Uh, and I think people feel far more entitled today than they did when he used to tell me these things back in the early 80s. And uh, I think maybe he would adjust his numbers today as well. I'll have to ask him. But there you go. Lots of feedback. You know, interesting feedback there from a listener. So since I'm always um, bashing genetic engineering, genetic modification, and it seems like maybe I'm a, a technophobe at some levels of, of research and getting us forward and out of the mess that we're in, I'm, I'm actually happy to uh, to talk about something that, that, that kind of fits in that world that I don't have a big objection to. A little bit of concern, but but not a real big objection to. Uh, Jake says this to me, even solar cells are GMO now. At least they won't contaminate the biosphere, comma, hopefully, period. And then there's a, uh, a link to an article on MIT. And uh, let me just read it to you. It's, it's actually pretty, inter pretty interesting. Researchers at MIT have found a way to make significant improvements to the power conversion efficiency of solar cells by enlisting the services of tiny viruses to perform detailed assembly work at the microscopic level. In a solar cell, sunlight hits a light-harvesting material, causing it to release electrons that can be harnessed to produce an electric current. The new MIT research, published online this week in the Journal of Nature Nan Nanotechnology, is based on findings that carbon nanotubes, microscopic hollow cylinders of pure carbon, can enhance the efficiency of electron collection from solar cells, a solar cell surface. Previous attempts to use the nanotubes, however, have been thwarted by two problems. First, making the carbon nanotubes produces a mix of two types, some of which act as semiconductors, sometimes allowing an electric current to flow, sometimes not, or metals, which act like wires, allowing the current to flow easily. The new research for the first time showed that the effects of these two types tend to be different because the semiconducting nanotubes can enhance the performance of cellar cells, but the metallic ones have the opposite effect. Second, nanotubes tend to clump together, which reduces their effectiveness. And that's where the viruses come to the rescue. Graduate students Zingan Dang and Hoing Jung Yi, not making fun of their names, folks, it's the best I can do with them, honestly, uh, working with Angela Belcher, the W. 
Uh, the W.M. Kleck Professor of Energy and several other researchers found that a genetically engineered version of a virus called M13, which normally infests bacteria, can be used to control the arrangement of nanotubes on the surface, keeping the tubes separate so they can't short out the circuits and keeping the tubes apart so they don't clump. The system the researchers tested used a type of solar cell known as a dye-sensitized solar cell, a lightweight and inexpensive type where the active layer is composed of titanium dioxide rather than silicon used in conventional solar cells. But the same technique could be applied to other types as well, including quantum dot and organic solar cells. The researchers say in their tests, adding the virus-built structures enhanced the power conversion efficiency from 10.6% Uh, up to 10.6% from 8%, almost a one-third improvement. The dramatic improvement takes place even though the viruses in the nanotubes make up only 0.1% of the weight of the finished cell. A little biology goes a long way. I'm actually not opposed to this. I'm really not. I am a little concerned. We start genetically modifying any virus. I worry, can we genetically modify it enough to where it causes a problem for humans? Since this is a virus that technically only affects bacteria... Uh, as long as they're taking pro proper precautions, well, maybe this is a place where things like genetic engineering can actually do something good for us. This isn't poisoning our food. No one's going to eat a solar cell. Um, again, I'm a little concerned about it, but I'm, I'm going to let some optimis optimism uh, overplay my concern here. And I think this is kind of cool. I'll put a link to the whole article. But basically, they take a virus, they genetically modify it, and they turn it into basically kind of a little biological nanobot that goes in and aligns these carbon structures. Uh, this is the type of thing science should be working on. Let's get some free energy going. Let's stop talking about how bad oil is and give me an alternative. Make it cost efficient. Build it and we'll use it. That's what I've always said. Um, here's another one. Boy, you know, you guys talk, you know, you think about, uh, I talk about a mileage tax. What do you hear this one? Um, Tom Tom device data used to catch Dutch speeders. Let me read this one to you. Talk about your invasions of privacy. It's not as bad as it sounds, but it still sucks. Your nifty navigation unit may help guide you to a destination, but it also simultaneously might be all, but it is also simultaneously ratting you out to the police. That appears to be the case in the Netherlands, where data mined from TomTom -tom devices was purchased by the Dutch police and then used to help catch lead-footed motorists. The introduction of consumer-grade portable navigation systems has helped drivers get their destinations easier than before, but the very devices that have helped them are now being used by Dutch police officers to determine locations where drivers speed. Police in the Netherlands have compiled data from TomTom's devices and decided the best places for speed traps and cameras. We learned today that the police in the Netherlands are using that information to identify road stretches where people in general, on average, drive too fast. They also put up speed cameras and speed traps, we don't, and we don't like that because our customers don't like that. We will prevent that type of usage of our data in the future, said TomTom CEO Hardin Gunjin in a video posted yesterday to YouTube. So basically TomTom says, well, we sold them the data, uh, but we didn't know what they were going to do with it. And now that they're doing this, we're not going to sell them the data anymore. You can believe that or not. I, at least, the, you know, when I first saw the headline, here's what I thought they were doing. I thought that basically they were monitoring your GPS, determining your speed, and sending you a ticket in the mail. But how far away from that are we if they're doing this now? Uh, but this is just another example of a way where we can harvest the information about not just where you've gone and how you got there, Uh, but how fast you went, and then we can charge you a mileage tax. This is another way to look at that. Of course, everybody heard about the stuff that came out with the iPhone recently. 
Well, what's going to happen eventually? Your phone might be what, what gets used as your toll tag. Uh, we can just measure your time distance between cellular sites and things like that. There's plenty of, I mean, I used to work for a company that did software engineering for management of, of, uh, of, of cellular systems. And I can tell you mobile phone systems, handoffs, conversion of two and a half to three G, uh, handing off between different sectors. I can tell you that all the information necessary is there. Uh, what about people that don't have a cell phone? Well, the government will just give you one if you don't have one. How about that? Because uh, they already do that. You, you can already get a free phone. Um, I'm telling you, the mileage tax is coming. This is just another example of it. Uh, Chad, and, Chad also asks, uh, same guy, says, uh, instead of buying two-by-fours and cutting it up for kindling, what about a used pallet? I see so many old pallets around. Most businesses just want to get rid of them. Yes, they do have a few nails and staples, but I find that they're easy to see and avoid. I split pallets up and use them, or maybe I should reuse them. Uh, say reuse them or repurpose them, I got to use uh, the green words, laugh out loud. Well, here's the thing about that. Um, I guess Chad's talking about one time I was on the air and I was talking about you know having a little bit of kindling in your bug out bag. And one of the things that will burn just beautifully as kindling is a typical white wood 2x4 that costs $1.88 uh, from, you know, uh, what do you go, like Home Depot or Lowe's or something like that. And then what I had done to set up some kindling for myself is just taken a few pieces that were left over in scrap and split it up real fine and bundle it up. And I keep that in all my all my different gear bags. I keep a little bundle of that. And that stuff, you can light it with a match and it burns beautifully. Using pallet wood, pallet wood pretty much will do the same thing. I want to be clear, though, about the use of this type of kindling. It is not for, not for, not for, not for uh, using in general in your homes like in a fireplace or something like that. Uh, the, the, the pallet wood, depending on what it's made out of, there's pine, there's, if it's oak, it's fine for that, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna really work as well for you. Most of the cheap fir, pine stuff, uh, is what burns easy. It's that sap. A little bit of it to get a fire going, okay, but you can't burn that stuff in a fireplace. It burns too hot and too fast. It produces a massive amount of creosote, and it really increases your risk of chimney fires. So this is more for when you're backpacking, having a little bit of kindling with you or something like that. And the reason I recommend you using the cheap piece of 2x4 for it is you look at a 2x4, the 2x4x8, they're, they're under 2 bucks. And I know it's a piece of wood that can be used to construct something, but it's under $2. How much kindling can you make out of one of them? Now, I prefer to use scrap pieces, and I do enough building and projects to have some around, but if, if you really look at it economically, it just makes sense to, uh, to get a hold of it because it works so well. Um, here's the next one I wanted to read to you, a little bit of good news about genetically modified stuff. Uh, let me pull up the article. This comes from Doug, and it says, basically, if Monsanto loses the case, uh, they can't sue farmers if the product infects neighboring fields. Let me uh, read this to you. So it's a fairly long article. It's on Baker Creek's site, which is rareseeds.com. Baker Creek, by the way, is a great seed supplier. I really love them. Love You should get their catalog if you have it. It's like a picture book. You could literally take the Baker Creek uh, catalog. And put it on your coffee table as a coffee table book. That's just how awesome their their catalog is. Anyway, let me read this to you. This was posted on April 11th, so about you know three weeks ago. Class action suit has been filed by a group of plaintiffs connected with organic natural food movement against the gene splicing giant Monsanto Corporation. The suit filed on March 29, 2011, in the United States District Court, Southern District of New York in Manhattan, seeks a declaratory judgment against Monsanto. If granted, the judgment will prohibit Monsanto from suing for patent infringement in the event the patented genes, such as their glyphosate-tolerant genes, should turn up in seeds or plants grown by organic or heirloom farmers. 
The suit alleges that Monsanto's aggressive tactics have in the past resulted in undue hardships on small operators who have inadvertently experienced contamination from GMO crops, especially those containing glyphosate tolerance uh, gene, commonly known as Roundup Ready gene, as exemplified in the well-known Percy Smizer case. In that case, Smizer, a canola farmer, was accused of patent infringement because Monsanto-owned genes turned up in his fields in the absence of any license from Monsanto. In a press release, uh, Pupat said the organic plaintiffs are forced to sue preemptively to protect themselves from being accused of patent infringement should their crops ever become contaminated by Monsanto's genetically modified seed. If the plaintiffs prevail, future situations like the Smizer's case would not happen, at least in the United States, as Monsanto wouldn't be able to sue them when the intention of the farmer was to raise GMO-free crops. The Smizer's case happened in Canada, and thus this ruling would only affect American farms. Uh, and then there's some site sightings and things like that. So interesting article. You should probably read the whole thing. If you have a blog about anything like this, you should link to this and blog about it. I think it's great material for your blog and helps spread the message. But let me tell you a couple things here. Number one, I don't think this goes far enough. I think it's a good first step. Basically what this says is let's say I set up Jack's Organic Farm somewhere in Arkansas. I buy another piece of land more appropriate to a true farm, and I, I start growing organic soy and corn and stuff like that. Not that I would. That's not really the organic business I want to be in, but let's say that's what I choose to do. And I should be able to do whatever I choose to do because I'm an American, live in America, do it with my own money on my own property. And Monsanto has a farmer down the road from me that's growing his GMO uh, corn and his, you know, with his uh, with his BT corn, with his uh, bacteria built into the corn from a fish gene, and his GMO Roundup Ready soy. Now, after a few years of farming, uh, pollen has come from his farm down to my farm. I'm saving my own seed. I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to be. Monsanto in the past has sent people they call the seed police. No, I'm not making this up. This is real. They would come into Jack's organic farm and they would genetically test my corn and soy and say, Mr. Jack, guess what? You're screwed. You have Monsanto's genes in your uh, on your farm. And I say, I don't want them there. And they'd say, we don't care. You have them. They're our property. You've stolen our property. I want you to think about this. This has happened multiple times. There's multiple recorded cases of it. And then they give me a fine. And I can either pay the fine and shut up and they'll go away. Or I can fight them, in which case they will try to ruin me and put me under. And take me to court and try to sue me for everything I had. Just like they did the Schmeiser up in Canada. Alright? What this case says is if you do that to me, you can't sue me. If my intention is to grow GMO-free crops, if I'm not intentionally stealing your property, just because your property got on my property, doesn't mean that there's a problem here and you have to go away. That's a good first step. And I hope they win, and there's no reason they shouldn't win. And anybody with a freaking brain, all you people that even think it's okay to have GMO should think it's ridiculous that my crop would infect your field and then I could go sue you for stealing my property. This is a biblical principle, and I'm not a biblical man, but I do believe that when we look at historical law, we should look at where it comes from and how long it's been around as a tradition. And all the way back into Leviticus, there is the concept that if your ox gores my ox, you owe me a new ox or you have to pay to fix my ox. Right? If my ox gores your ox, then I owe you. It's my responsibility to fence my ox in, not your responsibility to fence my ox out. That's how it works. It's common agricultural law. That if I cause the damage by me bringing something into the situation, it's my fault. And that's been around for centuries and centuries and millennia. 
And it's been the way it's been until the advent of genetic modified organisms going into the agricultural community. It's always been that way. Whatever caused it, the cause was the liability. Now, the people that caused the problem actually attack the people that received the problem. Because let's take this to the next level where I think it should be. If I set up my corn and I set up my soy, and when I do that, there's not genetically modified corn and soy at the specified distance that Monsanto says already there, I find a place to do it and I set up and somebody else moves within that distance or I get contaminated, period, by GMO genes in my seed stocks. Whether somebody's there or not now doesn't matter because remember Monsanto sets the separation. They say at this distance it should be okay. They're advertising their product that way. I should be able to turn around and sue Monsanto for damaging my seed stocks. Some rice farmers, I think, actually pulled that off. I want to see more action like this. Those of you that think I'm nutty about the GMOs, you do not understand the facts. You really don't. Now, if you fully understand the facts, you think this stuff's okay, fine. But I believe that the majority of people out there that think this is a non-starter, you have not done the most basic research. You haven't looked at the research where rats were fed the genetically modified corn and developed kidney and liver disease relatively quickly. Now, they were fed exclusively the genetically modified corn. That's true. But the control group was fed exclusively corn that was not genetically modified, and they didn't develop the kidney and liver disease. The only variable was the GMO. Now, was it the genetically modified trait, or was all the crap sprayed on top of it? Does it matter? Does it really matter? I think that we have to really take a good hard look at this and see this as one of the threats to our food supply. And I encourage you, again, not to take my word for it, to do some research into this subject. Okay, this is the second to the last one. This is real synchronicity that this showed up. Uh, I was just in Arkansas, as you guys know, and I had um, a lunch with a, a listener from the show up there, a guy named Scott, who's a magician that uh, does some shows in Hot Springs and all around the world. Real neat guy, listens to the show, long-time listener. And we were just talking about various things. And he was asking me about the show. I can't remember the name of the TV show now. Um, but it was like 18 and counting is like the tagline or something like that. It's a huge family and all these frugal things they do. And it sounded really cool. And it sounded like one of the – he said like it's the only reality TV show that he watches. And the one thing he kind of hooked me with is he said he was making – uh, this laundry detergent that was like so cheap compared to, because laundry detergent's a real expense, especially in a bigger family. And uh, he was telling me how you make it out of borax and washing soda and some kind of this bar thing. And I've been meaning to look it up. And then what happens like a few days later, uh, when I can't remember the name of the show, I can't remember how to do it or whatever, uh, Ryan sends me an email. And in the email is the, uh, is the directions to make this exact laundry soap. And it was uh, posted at housefulloflove.wordpress.com. I haven't even looked up the site. I don't know if that's the same people or just somebody publicizing this. But I'm going to read the basic way to make the liquid one, and there's a way to make a dry one as well. I will post in the forum the full uh, the full thing here, give credit to where it came from, and that way you can look up the recipe for doing this online. Uh, but let me just go ahead and read the basics of how you make the... Uh, the liquid form, which actually seems to be more work to me than the dry, the powdered form. Uh, homemade laundry soap. Four cups of hot tap water. One Fells the Naphtha soap bar. Wegman sells the 5.5 ounce bar for $1.29. You can also use ivory soap. One cup of Arm & Hammer super washing soda. Wegman sells 55 ounces for $2.79. One half cup of borax, Wegman sells 76 ounces for $3.99. 
Grate the bar of soap and add it to a saucepan with water. Stir continuously over medium heat until the soap dissolves and is melted. It works best if you grate the soap fine. I have a grater I use only for grating soap. I would advise you to do the same thing. Fill a five-gallon bucket half full of hot tap water. Add the melted soap, washing soda, and borax. Stir well until all the powder is dissolved. Fill bucket to the top with more hot water. Stir, uh, stir and fill... Fill a used clean laundry soap dispenser half full with soap. Then fill the rest of the way with... Hold on, I missed something there for you guys. Stir, cover, and let sit overnight to thicken. I went to Lowe's and bought a five-gallon bucket with a lid. Cost six to eight dollars. Stir and fill a used clean laundry soap dispenser half full with soap. Then fill the rest of the way with water. Shake before each use. I use a one-gallon water jug. Optional, you can add 10 to 15 drops of essential oil per two gallons. Uh, add one soap has cooled ideas, lavender, rosemary, tea tree oil for smells. Okay. Yield liquid soap recipe makes 10 gallons. Top load machine, 5 eighths cup per load, approximately 180 loads. Front load machine uses a quarter cup per load or approximately 640 loads. And then there's a way to make a powdered version. Again, I'll put this on there. But I mean, I'll tell you what, we're not hurting for money. We're not rolling in money or anything either. But one thing my wife always complains about when we go to the grocery store is how much laundry detergent costs. So this little, uh, you know, setup here, you get 10 gallons for about five bucks. And, uh, I, I'll tell you, from what Scott told me, he said like he does this too. And I also know Scott is not scraping the bottom barrel to get by. I'm going to do this. I think this is cool. And he told me it works every bit as good uh, as anything that you buy, and it saves a ton of money. And that's all money that can go toward your homesteading. I don't remember the name of the show. Maybe somebody can put it in the show notes. Uh, don't email me about it. Put it in the show notes, and that way everybody will know it's been done, and I won't get 800 emails. This is the name of the TV show where this originally came from. But I'll link to the blog today. What I'll do is instead of um, putting it in the forum, I'll put in the show notes, I'll put a link to where this is posted online to give full credit uh, to the, the content creator here, the, the blogger. Uh, it was posted by somebody named Pam. So uh, check out her blog, and, and maybe she's got some other cool tips like that. Who knows, maybe that's the, the show owner, maybe it's just a blogger that I can get on the show someday. So I thought that was really cool. It was also something I wanted to give you guys a uh, another resource. And they also have a thing for homemade fabric softener. Uh, that's two cups of vinegar, two cups of baking soda, four cups of hot water are the basic ingredients. The instructions, again, I'll put a link to that. So uh, make your own fabric softener, make your own uh, detergent. Now, does that mean that you have uh, the way to make detergent if the shit hits the fan and the end of the world as we know it happens? No, because you still got to buy this stuff. But you can store this stuff basically infinitely. And I think it would be pretty easy to put aside enough to make a one-year supply at any given time. Also notice that what you end up with, you, you cut it in half when you put it in your jug to make your detergent out of. So I thought that was cool. The last one came to me. I can't remember who sent it to me now. It was one of those things, like as soon as I saw it, I bookmarked it. Uh, but whoever sent me this, thank you so much. Um, it's a book that you can read online. It's a little hard to read online because it's on a site called the National Academics Academy's Press. And it's not a PDF. It's like images that for each page, and they're kind of small. Now, what I did and what made it easier for me to read on my laptop is I set the resolution down really, really low, to like 600 by 800 when I'm reading it, and that makes the image look much bigger relative on the screen, and it made it much easier for me to read, and I just set it back when I go to do something else. But the book is called Micro Livestock, Little Known Small Animals with a Promising Economic Future. Why don't I just buy it? Because the paperback version... Is $105, and the PDF book is $67.50. 
and I can read it for free here. But let me, I might actually even do a show talking about some of this in the coming week. Um, but let me read you some of the animals that are covered. Micro cattle, micro goats, micro sheep, micro pigs. Chickens, duck, geese, guinea fowl, muscovy ducks, which I'm going to keep uh, up in Arkansas. Pigeons, quails, turkeys, potential new poultry, which were a bunch of birds I'd never even heard of before, mostly from the tropics. Rabbits, um, uh, let's see, a, a goody, which I don't even know what they are. Copybearer, which is like a big giant rat. Kupu, giant rats, grass cutters, guinea pigs, hootia. Uh, Mara, Paca, so uh, Viscara, uh, and other rodents, and deer, including mouse deer, which I think is an African species. Haven't read this whole book, obviously. Uh, and it just keeps going. Uh, iguanas, uh, using stuff specific to South America. Water deer, musk deer, uh, again, lizards, including iguanas and bees. So I thought this was an awesome book. Um, it is about 500, 450 pages long. And you can read the whole thing online. Again, I'll put a link in today's show notes. But uh, some of the things that really piqued my interest in particular are the Muscovy ducks. Uh, we always called them Scobies when I was a kid. I found out that's a common thing that people call Muscovy Scobies. Uh, I was always told they're not good to eat, that they're, they're like a musk duck or something like that. Well, uh, it turns out they're one of the best eating ducks in the world. I've tried it. They're amazing. And look at what a dressed uh, Han or Drake... Uh, Muscovy duck costs if you buy one online. They're like $40 to $50 for one duck. You almost can't stop these things from reproducing, and it would be very easy with a small flock of Muscovies, maybe uh, a drake and three hens or a drake and four hens or two drakes and six hens to produce enough Muscovies to where you could eat one a week. Uh, and, and they need very little inputs. If you have any place where they can forage, and they don't really need a little pond, but it would be great for them and things like that. Uh, they'll eat your garden pests. They're so much less maintenance than uh, than uh, chickens. You can get some, you know, if for supplemental feed. You can get throwaway bread for next to nothing and give them that. Uh, so I think they're a great animal. Pigeons I'm very interested in uh, and, and growing them in what they call coats. Uh, or Cotez, I'm not sure how you say it, but basically it looks like a great big birdhouse. The pigeons just kind of take care of themselves. Man, that's doves is what that is. It's big doves. And, uh, of course, the best-eating pigeons are the ones that haven't quite started flying yet. They call that squab because uh, they haven't started using those, those breast muscles, so the meat is more tender. So uh, those are two very low-impact ones, and there's a lot of other cool things in this book. Again, the book is called uh, Micro Livestock, Little Known Small Animals with a Promising Economic Future. Uh, from the Board on Science and Technology for International Development National Research Council. So this is really designed for development of the third world and increasing their protein consumption, but it's certainly something we can use. And I'll tell you what, this is not stealing. That's on their site. You can only read it there. You can't download it. There is a PDF summary available. Uh, but like I said, if you have trouble seeing the words, because they're just on my laptop in particular, And I wear glasses and all. I got to get really close to be able to read uh, well. But just by changing the resolution, I was reading it in bed last night. It was much easier to read. Uh, so again, check that one out. Hope this has been a good show, giving you a couple little cool things at the end. Make your own detergent for pennies and a, and a cool free book you can read on micro livestock. 
I love doing shows like this, folks. Uh, once in a while, I complain about some of the stuff that I get, but reality is I love this because it's all about you guys, and it's all about using collective knowledge and bringing it together and me being a conduit to redistribute that information, and I'm really honored that I get to do that. I really am. Uh, sometimes I get on the air, and I get mad, and I yell, and you might think I'm kind of a blowhard about things or whatever, but it's actually very humbling to be able to do this show every day and know that every day people tune in to listen, and I know some days I don't do the greatest show in the world, and some days I do awesome shows and I try to do as many awesome ones as I can and I apologize for the ones that fall a little bit short I'm a little bit discombobulated right now I don't have I have my I'm in my office in Arlington uh, I have my uh, computer and my microphone sitting in the window seat I have a couple pillows behind the microphone to keep the the, the echo down so I know the audio quality is not quite what it could be uh, and, and that's it the only other thing in here with me is uh, believe it or not a giant teddy bear that's my wife sitting in a lo- uh, rocking chair looking at me uh, because it was in the way, so we shoved it there. So I, you know, I've got my new office. I'm paying for up in Hot Springs, and I'm sitting here, and I'm I'm trying to do this show the best I can for you. This is only going to go on for about another week. Next week, there may be some days without a show. We'll probably be loading up the final moving truck and getting the hell out of here for good. Dogs, cats, everything going this time. Uh, I hope that happens. Uh, we just basically have to finish a few things up with the realtor and stuff like that and just clean up a few more things, and we're ready to get out of here. The rain and the mud is not helping. A lot of stuff that I need to do is outside, and uh, it's like 48 degrees right now and pouring rain. We had hail last night so loud it woke us up. My wife's like, is there somebody on the roof? I'm like, no, that's hail. Um, so hopefully we'll get through. This it's supposed to be sunny tomorrow and uh, we'll be coming to you from Hot Springs every single day uh, very, very soon. Thank you to all of you that listen. Remember, if you'd like to have your uh, question, comment, commentary on a show like this, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the email. Put question for Jack or article for Jack or video for Jack or something like that in the subject. That will help me sort it and be more likely to get you on the air. Also, one more update. Interviews are coming. Lots of them. I have a lot of you guys sending me ideas for guests. Don't do that right now. I'm not interviewing anybody for at least two weeks. Until I am in my office and set up, I'm going to have a new form on the site for guests to fill out uh, that's going to help me do a really great job with the guests, making sure I get a good plug-in for their site, make sure I ask them the kind of questions I want. And, and what I want you guys to do, if you want to help me get guests, is in the future, once that's all set up, and I'm going to set that up this week, send the guest the information about the show and send them to the form. If I can get them to fill out that form, I know the first three questions to ask them. I know a summary of who they're about. That's what I'm going to be doing in the future. You guys just send me, hey, contact this guy or contact that guy right now. Uh, I'm so discombobulated. There's no way I can effectively do that. But uh, they are coming. And we're going to get to a point where we're doing one or two a week. And that's going to bring variety and new blood and new influx to the show. Thank you for the suggestions. I just can't use them right now. That's, that's the only thing. Couple more weeks, man. We're going to be on the end of this thing forever, and we're going to be rocking forward with the Survival Podcast from TSPN headquarters up there in Hot Springs, Arkansas. For those that keep asking, no, the tornadoes in Arkansas did not get my house. I was up in the mountains and safe there, and they did not get my office, though my office is in the lowlands, and it was only about five miles away from the office that uh, some pictures that I posted about the church uh, were wiped out, but you know, we, we came through that with, you know, tornadoes are generally very specific. Uh, something across the street from where they hit is generally not that affected. I'm going to be doing a show this week on storm preparation. There's only so much you can do in certain areas with certain things, but I'm going to do my best for you on that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way.
children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares. They're living for. 